what conditions are stipulations magic tricks or manipulations interjecting I'm Mackenzie Brennan. Um, wherever you're joining, whether it be strictly ear-based or video-based, thank you so much for joining in. Um, if you do know me already, you know that I took some time off from doing my due diligence as a policy law streamer. Um, I also quit my job in the interim because my brain was burned out. Um, so now I'm back in the real world and um well the reason that i wanted to do a little couple part series is that the midterm elections are coming up and that is federal elections um and i'll tell you the specific story that raised such alarm bells in my head in a moment um but in general i thought that it would be useful to go through some election law some you know, principles around voting and what's at stake and what are the most prudent and realistic things to be setting as goals um, in terms of where we want the country to go and policy to go in the future. So this is going to be a kind of two-part episode. This first one I want to talk about voting within a two-party system, which is what we have. Um, who has what powers, um, where should we be placing blame kind of in relation to who has what powers, and then harm reduction in immediate strategies and comparing, you know, ideal long-term goals that aren't mutually exclusive from incremental short-term goals. And then weighing your decisions for who you vote for, whether you vote, et cetera, et cetera, with some nuance according to where you live, where you vote, um, what kind of election it is, what your options are on the ballot, and what's at stake, things like that. Because it's not going to be the same for people in different states. So maybe that's a good segue into why specifically I felt like panic drove me to make this the right moment to come back to the streaming platforms and such. So. I, as I have been dipping my toe back into being a participating member of society, my brain mostly recharged, all that good stuff, um, I signed up to do a virtual meeting. I'm from Arizona originally, I should have done more of an introduction up top, but I live in New York, I'm a lawyer licensed to practice in both New York and Arizona, from Arizona originally, um, and obviously there's a lot more need for certain types of advocacy in Arizona. So, um, in the interest of, of participating, followed this group called Arizona Radical Women, and I almost hesitate to say the name because I don't want to cast aspersions on them, but that said, I found myself worrying after this interaction, boy, I hope people don't find this group like me and maybe not have the, the little bit of an edge of, you know, legal familiarity to see that this is a problematic 
way of preaching progress and then kind of get sucked into this way of advocating for things. So for that reason, I'm saying the name. Um, obviously, their hearts are absolutely in the right place, so I don't mean to um, malign their goals at all. But their message is to, as an Arizona group who advocates for justice for women across issues. So that means women of color as well. It means immigrant communities. It means LGBTQIA folks. It means reproductive justice, all those issues and more, um, and how they intersect with women. Um, in furthering those goals, their official platform is do not vote blue. Don't vote for Democrats on the Arizona ballot. Um, and that means don't vote for them in state positions, in local positions, um, or the national platform because Democrats have failed to deliver on a number of promises. Now, I agree on, on that assessment of Democrats' performance in certainly, I mean, Arizona especially. You got Kirsten Cinema, who I was once really excited to have, you know, a bisexual Arizona woman um, representing the Democratic Party in a national uh, context. And then, boy, she turned out to be a bland sheep in really fancy clothing. I don't know. I was trying to come up with something funny. Um, so anyways, I get it. Um, Democrats have not delivered on all the promises they made. Democrats can be very problematic in terms of taking corporate money, just like, you know, Republicans. Um, and when such large issues are at stake and even more every day, it's hard not to feel really frustrated when more progress isn't made, especially because at the moment we have democratic control of both the executive branch and the House and Senate by a tiny margin. Um, that is a note on another reason why I think this is very important to do, because the midterms are going to determine if and how much that balance tips, the ideal, as you will see, is that we get more of a majority because a lot of the issues that are hampering Democrats from making progress is that the majority that they have in the two houses, so the House of Representatives and the Senate, um, is so slim that you need literally every single Democrat on the same side, which we know that it's really hard to agree. This is part of the problem of people not wanting to vote blue because if you divide the whole country into two ideological groups, it's gonna be really hard to get agreement on like a binary basis. So obviously it's really hard to do. It's basically what is required of even first steps, let alone, you know, doing the whole build to a law process. So ideally we wanna make that margin a little bigger. So I get it. I get that Democrats have not delivered on a lot of promises and the stakes are so high that we really want them to right now more than ever. But I was in horror when I heard that that is this group's official platform. And Arizona, if you're not familiar, um, is what's called a purple state these days. Um, that means it it's a historically red state, it's historically very Republican, um, and in the last two presidential elections, it has been leading more and more 
blue, more democratic, um, especially around the fast-growing metropolitan areas, uh, mostly Phoenix and that metro area. Um, I think probably in practice even more than in what we see reflected in elections because there's always the problem of voter suppression, especially when you think of like the large immigrant community in Arizona, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then Latinx, even larger. Um, a lot of them are disenfranchised by Republican laws that have been passed in Arizona. So it's, it's what you call a swing state because it's very populous. It carries a lot of votes in the scheme of things. Um, and as purple states go. So it's like, it's not a done deal for either party in, and that, you know, holds true for Senate-based elections, House-based elections, the presidential, all of those. Um, it's a close call. It's also a state where the red side, so the Republican side, has gotten very, very extreme and has really been taken over. This used to be the state where the Republican Party was that of John McCain who was a, you know, I wasn't a big fan of him, but um, in current standards, he was a pretty neutral guy. He was comfortable reaching across the aisle at the very least, did make compromises, did seem to have, you know, a heart, <laughs> um, was a bright person, was somebody familiar with foreign policy and domestic policy. Like he offered a lot more than the likes of, say, Carrie Lake, who's currently running for governor and Brett Masters, who another candidate from Arizona at the moment, who was like at one of the Proud Boy rallies and is openly white supremacist and um, just really, really terrifying stuff. Abortion is fully banned in Arizona right now. So there's a lot of stuff that is really terrifying that's on the table in Arizona. And the polls are so extreme in terms of good and evil. So when I heard this local women's, you know, liberal advocacy group telling its members not to vote for the party that will keep us safe in the immediate sense because they're not perfect, um, I got really worried because Arizona is a state that is going to make a huge difference in whether we keep the Senate, whether we keep the House. Um, certainly in the next presidential election, Arizona is going to make a big difference. And so if that holds true in Arizona, that they keep preaching that and they keep reaching more people, and certainly assuming that other states that are purple and even blue have groups preaching similar messages, I'm scared. <laughs> so uh, let's do our part to talk about why you really shouldn't do that. Please vote blue. Hold your nose if you have to. Um, and I should finish the story, I guess. So I, you know, I did my due diligence. I did like raise my hand in the virtual chat and I was like, I totally understand what you're saying, um, especially Kirsten Cinema, man, what a letdown. Um, that said, we can have long-term goals of either, you know, taking over the Democratic Party. That's what the, um, the MAGA Republicans did to the classic Republican Party, the John McCain Republican Party. Um, so, we certainly, as the more radical liberals, can take over the Democratic Party. That's an option. That's a long-term goal that we can have. We can try to retool the national system, which would take some work, but retool it such that uh, we could be a three-party system or not so strictly a two-party system. There's all sorts of ways that we can look to, and we'll get to this in a later episode in this mini-series. 
But there are a lot of ways that we can look to not have the current democratic options as our only good, only like non-dire option on the ballot. And I'm all for that um, if it's done intentionally and practically. Hell yeah. Um, but I asked why, I, you know, as a lawyer, I think how is how I framed it. As a lawyer and a woman who just saw Roe v. Wade overturned with a Supreme Court appointed by, largely by Republican presidents, um, most significantly recently by Trump, um, you know, so that electoral power coming from voters in states like Arizona voting either red or blue and seeing, you know, the Supreme Court judges are appointed by the president. So those are pretty high stakes. And we're just seeing the coming to fruition of what happens if you vote not blue, if you don't do everything you can to make sure that a red president, that a Republican president doesn't end up in the office. And that's just one of the branches. So essentially asked, um, re like, really? Um, can't there be a harm reduction immediate strategy? Um, didn't really get a great answer. I don't think I was expecting to, like, I don't think there is a good answer to my question because I happen to believe that their stance is not the correct one. Um, I think, again, these are well-intentioned and not stupid people. Um, but one of the gals in the group said, yeah, it was really frustrating because everybody told me when I didn't vote for Biden in Arizona in the last election because I was so frustrated with the Democratic Party, a lot of my friends um, said, like, I threw away my vote f by voting third party and that they were pissed at me because they kind of held their nose and voted for Biden and they didn't like him. And then I just threw mine away. And that was her answer. Um, I did hold myself back from going like, yeah. <laughs> um, and in this episode, a little later, I'm going to get to uh, maybe walking through a little more clearly why that is truly in practice. If you abstain from voting or if you vote third party when there is no chance that that candidate will take a place in office, why that is throwing away your vote. Um, but so, yeah, that's how that ended. Um, Let's talk about the powers given to each branch. Um, so I was going to start with this and talking about, because an ancillary topic to this one is uh, maybe misdirected frustration. Um, and again, when I say things like misdirected or, you know, correct, maybe a commonly held misconception, um, on my side, my people, you know, like, well-intentioned people who are looking to expand right access and protections and all that good stuff. Uh, it's not an indictment. It's more um, like, it's almost the opposite. It's like, I see smart and very well-intentioned people with platforms espousing this type of view. So um, it, it is important to correct that because, um, those are the type of people that people like me even would listen to. So um, one thing that I see a lot on Twitter, which if you have listened to other things I've made, I hate 
Twitter so much. That is something that I'm comfortable condemning because it's like, it's anything that condenses like verbal expressions of views to a character limit is automatically going to be the most simplified, unnuanced, like way to express political views or policy views. Like it's designed to be wrong and reductive essentially. I mean, it's not designed with that intention, but like it is, there's no way it was going to end up anything but that. Um, so like the more inflammatory, the more punchy, um, the less there is to digest is essentially what gets boosted on that platform, which is great in the like minority of cases where that means it's just super distilled and somebody has managed to incisively like summarize in that Einstein, you're an expert in this topic so you can explain it to a five-year-old kind of way. That's never, never the case. Maybe like one out of 500 popular view tweets. Anyways, so a lot of the tweets I see are like, wow, fuck you, Biden, for not doing X, Y, Z. So that leads me to what do you good people on Twitter.com think the powers of a national executive in the United States of A, what powers do you think they have? What do you think a president can do unilaterally, much like a king, that Biden is not doing? And this is not to say that Biden is doing perfect work. There are some things that he could be faster on or more sweeping on. Um, the loan debt relief thing is an example of some criticism that you heard about um, him maybe not canceling enough or not doing it quickly enough, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I understand that. And I also understand that he had a lot of political views to weigh because he's essentially the agent of compromise for an entire party, um, let alone his own views. But usually it's not cases like that where he has the power to do something, where the executive has the power to do something and they're simply not doing it and they could unilaterally fix a problem, and yet Biden, as president right now, is not doing that. So that being part of it. And then another part of it being what I talked about up top, which is, you know, how much of a majority do we have in the House and Senate? And is the lack of action an indicator more of like, we need more people on our side not fewer by not voting for them. And that's the reason why we can't get certain things done. So I was thinking of using um, as a running example that I also am passionate about throwing in there um, for this like type of exercise using reproductive rights and the idea of like codifying Roe v. Wade, which is something that a lot of people have been talking about. So for example, on the executive side, all these powers are outlined in the Constitution. Let me take a step back. The Constitution prescribes what powers go to the states, and so each individual state government, and then which ones are retained within the federal government, so the national government, and within that, the three branches thereof. So you have the legislative branch, which is two houses, so it's like one branch but two pieces. You got the Senate, and you have the House of Representatives, Then you have the executive branch, which is the president. Then you have the judicial branch, which is the federal courts, the most supreme of which is the Supreme Court. Um, And the executive appoints. There's a lot of, if you remember 
you know, schoolhouse rock or civics or that type of thing, there are checks and balances. So oftentimes, not only are powers delegated to certain places, but big changes made within those powers have to have some assent or approval or oversight by another one of the branches. And the idea of that is that one branch, like, for example, the Supreme Court, (laughs) couldn't just get, you know, a really crazy composition for some era in history and just, like, dismantle the whole country. Um, This is also why it's important to have, like, power in multiple branches, because one is great, but a Democratic president can't do shit without the House and Senate on their side, so on and so forth. Um, Mostly I'm going to focus on federal here because I think, first of all, you hear a lot about advocacy at the state levels, which is awesome, and it's really where a lot of change happens, but I feel like that type of talking is out there. So, and really what I'm worried about for states with this messaging is federal impact in the midterms. So just to get states out of the way really quickly, um, states' rights are generally delegated, like the powers that are delegated to states are generally the type of thing like policing. And, you know, I've had conversations with people about delegation of powers and people have said like, well, the speed limit that works in New York City, for example, is totally different than the speed limit that you would need in rural South Dakota. Those types of things are the things that are within the state's purview. So that's great. There's a lot of intuitive, I won't go through one by one, but there's a lot of stuff that's like state budgets and um, allocating resources and creating laws and regulations and stuff that fit the unique needs of the geography, the population, the composition. You do get a little messy. I mean, you get messy with a lot of things here, but one of the ways that the, the line between federal and state power gets tricky is states' rights, um, to boil it down, becomes the mantle worn by a lot of really bigoted exclusionary causes. And it's a way that people who advocate for shitty positions (laughs) in such issues try to reach into a larger influence pool. So you saw it with slavery being like one of the prime examples that the southern states, of course, it was less palatable to be like, we hate blacks. So it was like, oh, states' rights to the agrarian like lifestyle, and that's what our economy is based on. Um, but ultimately, it's just racist. Um, but it's a constitutional type of argument you can make. Now you see it with Roe v. Wade. You saw it with gay marriage. Like it's, it's a way of saying, like, let us be bigoted on a small scale. Oftentimes, once they're bigoted on a small scale, they don't stop there, by the way. So it's it's usually just like their foot in the door kind of thing. But um, so you see a lot of wars back and forth on, is this something that's delegated to the states? Because the Constitution's kind of vague so that it can cover a lot of ground and future issues that they didn't anticipate. But so it's like, well, this sounds more like a power that's delegated to the federal government. No, it sounds more like a power that's delegated to the state government. And here's what the text says. And here's what we've interpreted it. You get it. So that's the state versus federal. If you're interested in learning some more about that, um, you can look at stuff in the 10th Amendment, which is the one that 
talks about state delegation. Um, the other important thing to take away is that there is a supremacy clause in the Constitution that says that federal law and the Constitution are supreme. They come before any conflicting state laws on issues that, you know, are conflicted. So federal law is better. Let's, we'll say that much. Um, so let's see. Now you see like the general principles of how the powers are divided up. Now let's look at the branches within the federal government. So uh, now we can use my reproductive rights example. Um, there was a lot of this type of tweet sort of structure after Roe v. Wade was repealed in the first couple days where it's like, wow, it's really fucked up that Biden isn't just like making Roe law. Can't do that. He, he can't just do that because, you know, the whole principle of leaving Britain way back in the day was that we didn't want one person, even if it's an elected person, uh, to have monarchical powers. So, no, that wasn't an option. Um, for what it's worth, Biden did pass an executive order. And I'm not some, like, huge Biden stand for what it's worth. I end up sounding like this because I advocate for, like, nuance and mild approaches and oftentimes frustrated people tend to find a scapegoat and I get it um but it's not always that simple it's usually not that simple <laughs> um so yeah, so Biden did sign an executive order that made a lot of important changes to reproductive health access and is gonna be in cooperation with Merrick Garland the U.S. Attorney General so things like um in federal facilities you can't infringe on access to abortion and a system for filing discrimination complaints if people are you know prevented from accessing those things expanding birth control access and protection is the next step down um examining the state laws that infringe on abortion and seeing if they are constitutionally enacted and enforced and things like that so there is an executive only order that has been passed and is is going into execution. Um, but point being, the executive has limited powers. And then also executive orders are sometimes challenged because people who, usually people who oppose them, say that it's an overreach of power. And you see how that can get messy because Trump was somebody who passed a lot of executive orders, an unprecedented number of executive orders on a lot of things that arguably were not within the president's power and were just expressions of bigotry. So you can see in pretty clear contrast the risks of a president being able to do those things. Then um, one power that the executive does have, as I've mentioned already, is appointments to federal courts. Um, most prominent in our minds at this moment, the Supreme Court, which is solidly Republican appointees, a lot of Trump appointees who are very questionable, even in how they were appointed. Um, and this is one thing where I do question Democrat strategy a little bit because like more than one is in a stolen seat or a perjured appointment seat or um, seat that under the logic that, you know, they deprive Merrick Garland of a hearing because there was not enough time left before the election, but there were like six months left or something. And then 
Amy Coney Barrett was appointed with uh, a month left before the election after RBG died. So like to defend the appointment of one of the seats would be to invalidate one of the other Republican seats. So like I wish Democrats would look at that, but I guess it's I think their reasoning is that it would destabilize arguably the most stable branch, which is the court. Um, So I guess we're just fucking writing it out and hinging all our hopes and dreams on the legislative and executive in the interim. So even more impetus to vote. Oh my God. Anyways. um, So yeah, that's, that is a significant power of the executive. A lot of foreign, like international relations stuff goes to the executive in case you're curious. Um, Yeah. But uh, so there's a final plug to care about presidential elections too, even though that's not happening this year. Um, I don't care if you don't love the Democratic president, please do whatever you have to do to vote for them. Hold your nose, you know, take anti-nausea medication. I don't. Whatever you need, call me and I'll talk you through it. Um, Because if we lose any more seats on the court, this is going to be the rest of our lifetimes. Or there'll be a civil war. And I don't know about you, but like I physically am not going to win in any battle of strength. So see ya. Um, I also don't have guns. So I'm really just fucked for every which way. Um, The judicial branch has its own delegated powers too. Uh, Obviously the interpretation of the constitution being a big one um, that we see in the Supreme Court context. But what I want to focus on mostly is the legislative branch. So House and the Senate talked about in Article 1 of the Constitution because they were that important and because they were kind of meant to be as the large body elected by the people, they were the ideal branch to hold a lot of the, you know, really hard-hitting powers. Um, So one thing that I wish people would talk about more, but it's less sexy and it certainly is going to get fewer tweet likes and then it really, like, fetters itself in terms of viewpoints getting out there. Um, But the fact that Democrats not accomplishing what they promised and what they set out to do, and when I say this, it's not exclusive, and I know there are a lot of criticisms of individual members of Pelosi, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Be that as it may, uh, I think a lot of the reason why Democrats haven't made the progress that they'd like to, even though they have the executive branch and both houses of the legislative branch right now, is that we have too slim a margin. So, for example, if we wanted to codify Roe v. Wade, which I do, I think we should, and I still think there are ways to do it, and I wish it would, I wish they would get cracking, and I wish they would do it before we all forget about the fact that our bodies are free reign now. Um, but they would either need to get rid of the filibuster, which allows um, members of the other party, even if you have a majority, to um, basically talk and just ad nauseum prevent a vote from happening. So they need enough votes on that. And Kirsten Cinema, the Democrat, maybe Joe Manchin, two of the Democrats, enough to spoil the majority held by Democrats are not fully sold on that. So that 
is potentially a non-starter. What that would do, getting rid of the filibuster, would allow people to vote in the Senate to expand the court, the Supreme Court, and rehear a case. So you see how that kind of being an example of the lack of progress is not that we need fewer Democrats there, it's that we need better ones, certainly. Um, So get involved and get your people in, vote more and get more people to vote and run yourself. Um, And also, we need more Democrats. We need not just 51. We need not not even just 55. We need as many as we can possibly get out of 100. And same with the House, which has 435, half of that, you know. And then another example of this same principle is in the Article One prescribed process for the bill becoming a law, um, which is, you know, you need majority vote of both houses, which is called bicameralism. So you need the House and the Senate majority vote on this bill for it to become a law. And then presentment, which is you bring the bill that has been approved by both houses to the executive and they have to sign it into law. Um, Now, if they veto it, if the executive does not sign it or actively vetoes it, same kind of result, um, you need two thirds of both houses to override a veto. So that's a non-starter. If you don't have a really solid, like a two thirds majority for your party, or it becomes party because we don't really cross party lines anymore. Um, in theory, this was just like, oh, well, if it's a good idea, then maybe two thirds of the people will vote for it anyways, even though the other party, but those days are behind us for better or worse. Long-term goal, it would be great if we got back to that and like didn't have basic identity issues on the chopping block and thus could maybe play around a little more with compromise. Um, but two thirds, basically you would need to your party given how things are now, if you want to overwrite a veto. So you see, you need both houses, you need a a solid majority, and there are different issues where you need more than what's called a simple majority. So not just 51 out of 100, but you need, um, it depends with different things, but you need two thirds or you need three quarters. Um, So you need both houses, you need a solid majority in both houses, and you need multi-branch coordination. So to illustrate, if we had both the House and the Senate Democratic, but Trump were still in office, that whole presentment to sign wouldn't happen, <laughs> um, even if you had both branches giving a solid majority. And again, there are ways around that to override the veto, but you see how like you need strength in numbers. You don't need, like, well, it's time to stop voting for this party because they're not getting it done. The dearth of Democrats is the reason why it's not getting done. And yes, it's also because some Democrats suck more than they rightfully should for their electorate cinema. Um, But the bigger issue is we need more. Um, So, okay, we'll stop there for now. And then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the gap between the lesser and the greater evil. and then conceptualizing voting as like necessary and not sufficient participation if we want to change um, 
you know, voting, I saw I saw a good tweet within the last couple of years. Of course, I can't attribute it properly, which is also a great indication of how poorly there's source citing on Twitter. Jesus Christ. Um, but anyways, it was somebody saying that, like, the candidates you vote for should be seen not as your ultimate goal and, like, your ideal person, your soulmate. It should be seen as, like, a bus stop in the direction that you want to go. And I think that that is a very realistic conception. And because, I mean, you think about how many people there are in this country, each with their own unique views. And even if you divide, you know, the Democratic Party or people that vote Democrats into five groups, you still need compromise there. And then you think of every individual person within that. Like, it's absolutely impractical to think that any candidate, even in a 10-party system, is going to adequately represent every viewpoint you have. And in these very polarized times with very fundamental issues on the table, it does get scarier. Um, I get that. But these are not your soulmates. You're not marrying them. It's just movement in the right direction. And I think that also holds true with the type of change that is lasting. I know RBG, the late Justice Ginsburg, talked about this um, in relation to a criticism she had of Roe v. Wade, which was that it was such a sweeping thing taken out of the political process that it was one piece of progress. It was easy to strike that down because it was one thing. Whereas if you had built up a scaffold kind of of a bunch of states voting in the right direction and a bunch of different decisions, it would have been harder to knock it down. And that's not to say that she thought Roe should have been decided differently because she didn't. But you do see the validity of what she was saying, which is the incremental change and progress that is on that strong framework is best. So if we have a bunch of little steps in the right direction, that's not the worst thing in the world, um, as long as we're not going actively in the wrong direction. So we're going to talk about voting in that lens next time and the quote-unquote impact of not voting or voting third party. And spoiler alert, it's not that the government comes and knocks on your door and says, hey, I noticed you didn't vote. Um, anything we can do to change the system and make you feel better? They don't give a fuck. So anyways, um, thank you so much for listening. You can find me at mkzjoybrennan on all the stuff or at mkzjoybrennan.com. And if you're watching this, you can check out exceedingly persuasive xxcee deeply persuasive wherever you get podcasts we'll be back register to vote